sermon. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to continue our journey together through Ephesians. We're into the home stretch. Chapter 6 is the last part. Remember what we said at the beginning of this series, which is that it is God's agenda in our lives as we grow up in Him to bring us to the place where we receive His Word on its terms. When we allow the Bible to set the agenda in our lives instead of us bringing our agenda to the Scriptures. Uh, that's normal and natural when we're young and immature. We say, God, here's my problems, and we, we treat that as the starting point of our relationship with him. But God's uh, plan in my life and yours is to grow us to the place where we listen to his word before we even engage our situation, where we let him set the agenda. And we recognize that by verse by verse, moving through parts of God's word like we're doing in this series in Ephesians. And so this morning we find ourselves in chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 7, and and let me begin by asking you how you're doing with learning to appreciate rules. Raise your hand if you love rules. Yeah, see, so look around, right? How are you doing with learning to appreciate rules? A very few of us would say, oh, I love rules. Most of us would say, oh, I hate rules. And I wish there were fewer. When I was a kid, when I was growing up, um, my parents had horses. Um, they kept them in a big pasture, not very far from our house. We weren't like actually on a farm most of the time. Towards the end we were, but um, there was this pasture where we had our horses. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, my parents replaced the fence in the pasture with a new fence. Actually, with a new kind of fence, which to my 10-year-old eyes didn't look like a fence at all. It just looked like two little strands of wire. And it didn't look like it could keep anything in or anything out. And when they built it, I, I remember being kind of confused. I had doubts about the power of that fence. And I thought that my parents might be losing their marbles. The first time we went out to the pasture after the new fence was installed, my mom said to me and my sisters, okay, kids, we have new rules now when we're in the pasture. One of the new rules is don't touch the fence. You can't climb on it. You can't play on it. You can't crawl under it. Stay away from the fence. Being my ornery 10-year-old self, I said, why? Mom said, it's hot. It will hurt you. But it didn't look hot. And so I said so. Mom said, honey, do what I say. Just trust me on this. My dad, being my dad, added a little extra instruction Knowing my tendencies in the pasture, because he created most of them, he put his arm on my shoulder and said gravely and with unusual seriousness, son, do not urinate on that fence. <laughs> Don't do it. I know you've done that before over in the corner where the trees are. Don't urinate on the fence. I said, why? He said, trust me. Well, you probably know where this is going. I got curious about the fence. In fact, I became obsessed with the fence. I stared at the fence. I listened to the fence. I touched the fence with sticks and rocks. And very soon, not touching the fence became unbearable. In the end, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I went over and I, I touched the fence. I grabbed it, actually. And it is a family legend to this day about how high I jumped and how loud I screamed. And after that, Dad says I tended to stay in the center of the pasture 
that was the day I first understood that rules have reasons, even when we can't see them, usually very good reasons. But you know, the reality is that you and I struggle with rules, especially the ones we don't understand or see maybe the reasons for. Like children, our first reaction to rules is to ask why. And if we don't get an answer that satisfies us, our second tendency is to kind of ignore the rules. There's two reasons for that. One is that, that we have come to think of rules as restrictions rather than freedoms. Let me say that again. We've come to think of rules as restrictions rather than freedoms. That's a choice on our part. And second, we, we, we think that rules exist in a vacuum rather than within a relationship. When dad said to me, son, don't urinate on the new fence, he wasn't just sharing truths about the universe. He was talking to his son about danger. When mom said, don't grab the fence, she wasn't just giving us facts. She was speaking to us from within a relationship. And that's how it is when God gives us rules. When God gives us rules, he gives them from within relationship. And understanding that is the key to benefiting from the rules. If I could take it back, I wouldn't have grabbed the fence that day. But I can't. God wants to parent us in such a way that we don't have those sorts of regrets. And that's what his rules are about. In the fall of 2003, a string of wildfires in Southern California claimed the lives of 24 people. When the numbers of dead became known, people were outraged and wanted to know how in this day and age, no one told these people to flee their homes, to get away from the wildfires. Well, th there was such an outcry that Sergeant Conrad Grayson of the Los Angeles Fire Department, the public affairs officer, went on TV to explain. And here's what he said. He said, folks, you got to understand, we have been begging people to leave all along. We have been telling them what was coming the whole time, repeatedly, uh, by email, by phone calls, in person. We have been communicating constantly to folks to, to leave the area of these wildfires. But so often, they simply wouldn't do it. They would say to us things like, we're okay, we understand the danger. We'll get out in time when the time is right. Or, or they said, you know, they wanted to pack some more. Or they felt like they could fight the fire with their own garden hoses. He said it was insane some of the reasons people gave us for, saying, uh, for staying. He said the crazy part of it was they acted like they knew more about fire than we do. That's the behavior of people who don't understand rules who don't understand that they're given to set us free, who don't understand that they're given from within relationship. He said, they wouldn't listen. I wish I knew why. It's so sad. The ones who listened and followed our rules were fine. We didn't lose one. The ones who didn't died. Now, here's the reality. Fire is a wonderful thing. A campfire in the woods on a clear summer night is one of the best things in the world. A warm fire on Christmas Eve with your family is awesome. A fire in your backyard barbecue with a little salmon or steak or ribs is seventh heaven, and now all you're going to think about for the rest of my message is lunch. But fire can be an awesome thing. 
What makes the difference between good fire and deadly fire? A few rules. A few simple rules. Rules turn fire into joy. What do you call a fire with no rules? You call it a wildfire. It's horrible and dangerous. God comes into our lives, church, giving rules. He comes into our lives drawing boundaries. Sometimes we struggle with them. Often we struggle to understand them. But here's the thing. He only gives us rules when he wants us to enjoy something that could be dangerous. G.K. Chesterton said it beautifully. He said the reason the Ten Commandments are so short and simple is because God forbids so little and permits so much. But what he does forbid, he forbids out of love, out of relationship. And it's as we understand that that we discover the power to obey his rules. I invited you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's listen to verses 1 through 7 in God's word. Here's what the scripture says to us. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. That's key. Circle that. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, not as a duty, as a passion. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Not a hint. Because these are improper for God's holy people. That word holy, so often misunderstood, it means devoted people. When the scripture says, be holy because I am holy, God is saying, be devoted to me because I'm devoted to you. Subject for another time. But Paul goes on to say, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. These are out of place. Instead, there should be thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, explain that in a moment, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you about this with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. All right, let's, let's take a moment and take this in, understanding that in this moment, God is speaking to you and to me, to us as a father. He's speaking to us as dearly loved children. He's speaking to us from within his relationship with us. And he is speaking to us very specifically about some rules. Look at what he says. He says, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Why are these things lumped together? It's a good question. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But look how in verse 6, Paul says, when it comes to these rules, let no one deceive you with empty words. Church, we live in a culture where the media will relentlessly seek to deceive us about sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Our media culture will tell us that these things are fun, exciting, they're fulfilling, they're satisfying, they're a release, they're the most pleasurable options you have, and all of it is a complete lie. They are empty words. When our culture suggests to us that the greatest thing, it's a website called Tinder. Maybe you've heard of this. And it says, life is too short not to have an affair. Talk about empty words. 
That's a road to destruction. That's a road prohibiting you from experiencing the reality of love. Paul says, when it comes to these rules that God gives you, understand that there's a lot of empty words about them out there, but they are deceptive. Second part of verse 6, he goes on to say, because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. When, when my dad warned me about urinating on the electrical fence, he was doing it for my benefit. He wasn't doing it for his benefit. Matter of fact, it probably would have been pretty funny from his angle, but he was doing it for my benefit. At our house, we have a saying. It goes like this, life is hard, sin makes it harder. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Over in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, the Bible says, don't be deceived, a man reaps what he sows. Paul is saying, God is saying, pay attention to what you sow. Let me draw some boundaries for what you put in the ground of your experience, in the, in the reality, the story of your life. Let's talk for a moment about what he means when he speaks of sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. What exactly is sexual immorality? That's an important question for us to ask ourselves because our culture is very confused about it. First of all, understand this. Sex in itself is good. It was God's idea. You should sit down on that for a moment. Sometimes in our religious zeal, we think of sex as somehow being something God's not interested in, something God doesn't want us to be interested in. But the reality is it was his idea. He taught it to Adam and Eve. He explained it to them. He gave it to them as a gift. Matter of fact, in your Bible, in Genesis, you're going to talk about, the scripture's going to say that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. And that word in Hebrew is yada. And it has the sense of God explaining this gift he had given to them. He created it. He instructed Adam and Eve in the joy of it. It isn't bad in any way in itself, any more than fire or guns or money or music is bad in itself. It just depends on how you use it. So sexual immorality is sex used outside of the rules God has given for it. Well, what are those rules? Scripture is very clear. For example, Leviticus 18 refers to some of them, but let me put an asterisk on that before you run with that ball. Leviticus 18 lists rules for sexuality, prohibits things like adultery, uh, sex outside of marriage, prohibits incest, prohibits homosexuality, prohibits bestiality, being involved with animals. Now, before you run there, however, in your dialogue with the people in your life about the issue of sex, understand that we are under the new covenant. And to base your arguments in Leviticus 18 is to make a profound mistake. As a matter of fact, in that same chapter, you're going to find God saying, don't eat certain animals. And then in Acts chapter 10, God's going to say, hey, under the new covenant, you can eat them all. So before you put your feet in that passage of Scripture, as you speak to our culture, understand that you're, you're putting your feet in a dangerous place because the immediate answer for any knowledgeable person was, well, we changed the dietary laws, what else? So understand that while Leviticus 18 gives us some paradigms, it's not the last word. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, the Scripture adds a rule against sex outside of marriage by indicating that if anyone cannot remain celibate, that is, non-sexual. By the way, that's not like uh, the worst thing that could ever happen. As a matter of fact, Paul rejoices in his own choice to remain celibate, encourages anybody who can manage it to do it so that you can devote yourself more fully to the Lord. Fascinating what 1 Corinthians 7 says about the marriage covenant we tend to worship sometimes. God says it's kind of, you know, something to be used to manage our sexuality. Subject for another time. But here's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. He says, if you can't control yourself, go ahead and marry. For it is better 
to marry than to burn with passion. So part of the rules is sex is to remain inside of a marriage. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, provides the ultimate definition of sexual immorality when he taught that lust must not govern our sexuality. Lust, our passions, our impulses, our our drives, our, our rush of feelings, our moods, lust must not govern sexuality. Here's how Jesus put it. He said it this way. He said, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully or man has already committed adultery in his heart. In other words, the rule has to do with more than obedience. It has to do with what's going on inside of me. It has to do with what's going on, what I choose to, to practice inside of me as well as outside of me. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uh, emphasizes this even further when he says to us, flee from sexual immorality, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he or she who sins sexually sins against their own body. In other words, sexual immorality has a unique effect on us. It is addicting. It erodes your self-control. It changes you. This is what the Bible means when it says he who sins sexually sins against his own body. I read a marvelous article some years ago by Dr. Jeffrey Satinover describing how the brain and neurological system, yours and mine, are shaped by the experiences that the body undergoes. Literally, your body rewires itself in the direction of your behavior. It's a pretty scary thought that your behavior can actually change your brain and neurological system. Now, the good news is that changed behavior can change it back. And there's a beautiful hope and promise in that. Our culture and its confusion about sexuality says to us, hey, if your neurological system presents you with certain impulses, that's the definition of who you are. The reality of medical science tells us something very different. It tells us your neurological system changes and adapts according to your behavior. The process works both ways. Touch a little bit more on that in a moment. But Paul doesn't just talk here about rules about sexual immorality. He also talks about rules about greed. And he calls greed idolatry. What does that mean? It means the belief that having more of something provides us with benefits, security, for example, that we can't obtain any other way. Idolatry is a wildly misunderstood concept in the Bible. We tend to think it was just something that people did back in the day when they built statues. It's not the truth. Idolatry is as real today as it was then, which is why Paul brings it up here. Idolatry is when we believe that we can control our situation, that we can control our lives, our satisfaction, our joy by sacrificing things that are meant to be received or given to God. So in the ancient times, why would a farmer participate in adultery? Because he believed that going to the temple and having sex with a temple prostitute would make his crop more fertile or make his herd grow bigger. It's a lie. It's not real. But he believed it, and as a consequence, his behavior was guided by it. God says greed does the same thing. How many of us believe that if we cut corners and accrue more money, that if we're dishonest in business, that if we're dishonest in some relationship uh, with regards to our money, that we somehow get ahead because of that? It's a lie. It's not real. It is idolatry. It is a belief in a cause and effect that God says isn't real. So greed is a, is a big deal. Uh, friends, there is this tendency in our culture for us to constantly say to ourselves, if you haven't adequately prepared for retirement, you have no security. Now, it's a good thing to prepare for retirement. Okay, the scripture's gonna say, hey, think about the tower you're building. Do you have enough to finish? It's a good thing to think about that. But to believe that your security in retirement depends on your cleverness, that's where the lie comes in. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. 
Jesus says, put me first. Watch. I'll show you. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. You keep putting me first. You watch what happens. I remember when Rhonda and I started off on this journey of faith, and we had no idea about giving. We grew up in unchurched homes. Maybe six, eight months after we became believers, the pastor came and started talking to us about our relationship to money just on a Sunday morning. It blew my mind. I'd never heard anything like it. And yet it was right there in the Bible, and we began to walk in it. And the amazing reality is that once you begin to walk in financial stewardship, you never turn back. Because the reality is so strong. How is it possible that if I give away my money, I'm more secure? God says, try it. Test me. Watch what happens when you submit your financial life to me. Financial Peace University is kicking off this fall. That's part of what you'll learn uh, in that incredible ministry. But Paul says, watch out about greed, this desire to create your own security. And then he talks about impurity, which he immediately then in verse 4 addresses what we do with our tongues. Now, we don't have time to get into this in depth, but the reality is that many of us believe we can control our lives with our language, that we can control our situation, our future, our past, our present, by how clever we are with our language. God says that's idolatry. Don't lie, don't deceive, don't withhold the truth. Walk in the truth. Let me give you this rule about your language And it will bless you, it will keep you safe, it will keep you secure. Jesus said that all sin brings slavery. Breaking these rules about certain things in our life, greed, sexuality, language, breaking these rules brings slavery. The Lord put it this way, he said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins becomes a slave to sin. Greed and impurity will enslave you. To just kind of tie all this together, church, understand this, what you and I do creates us. What you and I do with our tongues, with our bodies, with our ambitions and our desires, what we do creates us. That should be at once sobering because it can turn, it, turn us into monsters and also incredibly hopeful because it can turn monsters back into angels. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. That's incredibly hopeful. Can I, can I say something personally as a guy to guys? The great struggle of men in our culture is a struggle with pornography. And the great lie is that you can't unlearn that addictive habit. The reality is you can. The reality is that God can teach you how to overcome that addictive habit. Many of us think there's no way out. Many of us believe that freedom from that particular vice is not possible. The Bible says it is. That we can learn to control our bodies. And that is incredibly hopeful. The main thing standing between people trapped in sexual sin and the freedom they desire is the despairing unbelief that they can never change. But the scripture says you can And your journey begins in the moment when you say to God, I believe you can set me free from this. And I want you to do that. It's important to grasp that because again, God gives us his rules to set us free. Now, the first question that we have when we hear that is how? How does that happen? And the hope of learning self-control is found in a place we wouldn't look if God's word didn't direct us there. Look again at the passage of scripture that I just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, catch this, who do not know God. In other words, sin is what people do when they don't know God. 
Let me say that again. Sinful addiction is what happens to people who don't know God. Chesterton again put this marvelously. Here's something to think about this afternoon. He said the truth is that every man who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. He just doesn't know it yet. He's not going to find what he's looking for there. He's going to find it in God. The people who do know God are the ones who turn away from sin. How does that work? Well, let me take you back to an Old Testament story for just a moment. We're almost done. In Genesis chapter 39, we read part of the incredible story of a guy named Joseph. Joseph went through some tough times. Joseph's life was a bunch of up and downs, just like yours and mine. Joseph found himself at one point in his journey rescued from slavery and made the head of a wealthy man's household. The wealthy man's name was Potiphar. Joseph, because of his uh, lifestyle, so impressed Potiphar that Potiphar promoted him to the point where he was running the whole show. One day, Potiphar, his master, was away, and Potiphar's wife, the Bible tells us, came to Joseph, and she grabbed hold of him. She saw that he was handsome, young, good-looking, and attractive young man. She grabbed hold of him. She said, come to bed with me. Now, if this is your average TV movie of the week, that's exactly what happens. But not in this story. In this story, Joseph says, no, I can't do that. How could I possibly do that? Joseph says, my master, I'm the most important person in this whole household to him. How could I ever treat him that way? And instead, Joseph runs away from that moment. He flees from that temptation. Verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 39 record the moment. Joseph says, no one is greater in his house, my master's house, than I am. That's his sense of identity, of relationship. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing? In other words, my relationship with my master makes me want to keep his rules, makes me want to obey him more than anything you could offer me. You see, Joseph loved his master. That's why he said no to sin. And it's really that simple. Understand something, church. Only love is more powerful than sin. God gives us his rules. He makes them clear. We say to ourselves, I don't know if I can obey him. I want to grab the fence. Only love can keep us from breaking the rules. Only love has the power to keep us from breaking the rules. I said, we're almost done this morning. Hear me, please, my fellow believers, my fellow human beings. Lots of people struggle with sin because they do not choose to practice the habit of loving God. They're willing to obey him often, but only in a self-serving way, the way we obey the police or the IRS because we don't want to be hassled. And they may be very careful about his rules. The Pharisees were as a way of kind of proving something to themselves. I'm a good person. But they do not romance him. They do not seek to love him. And thereby they break what Jesus called the greatest commandment of all. Can I challenge you this morning? Do you romance your God? Do you romance your Savior? Do you court him? Do you seek to please him? Do you look for ways to delight in him? I was talking with one of our young staff members just this morning in prayer, very early before church got going, and he was sharing with me how the night before he discovered uh, in a way he'd never known before what it meant to delight in the Lord. He said, I just want to stay there forever in that moment. I didn't want to go to bed. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to leave the room. I said, yeah, that's real. Many people are trying 
to keep God's rules without romancing him, without loving him. You can't because the power is found in that love relationship. And sometimes at worst, they end up congratulating themselves for being religious. Comedian Louis C.K., not somebody I would encourage you to pay a lot of attention to, but he has a, a routine in which he jokes about having the impulse to give up his first-class airline seat to a soldier. Here's what he says. He says, servicemen and women always fly coach. You never see them in first class. He said, I've never seen a soldier in first class in my life. He says, but I always fly first class. That's kind of my world. He said, every time I see a soldier getting on a plane when I'm already in first class, I think to myself, you know what? I should give him or her my seat. It would be the right thing to do. It would be easy to do, and it would mean a lot to them. I should just tell them thank you for their service and give them my first class seat. He says, every time I see a soldier, I think that. And then he says, not once have I ever done it. He said, but here's the worst part. I think it, I don't do it, they walk past me and sit down, and then I say to myself, what a great guy I am for even thinking about doing that. That's pretty cool that I would have that impulse. And then he says, there's this other little voice, I don't know who it is, saying, just thinking it doesn't mean anything. You didn't do it. Love asks, what can I do one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures in Mark chapter 14 when that woman with a precious jar of perfume, the scripture says it was worth a year's wages. What do you make in a year? That's how much this jar of perfume was worth. And she came to Jesus in a crowded place and she poured this perfume out on him. She anointed him. It seems kind of weird to pour perfume on somebody, but in that culture it was a sign of respect, of love, of appreciation. So she anointed him with this incredibly precious jar of perfume. The crowd said, ah, you're, you're blowing it. You could have sold that, given it to the poor. It would have been better. Jesus said, wrong, wrong. How, why did he say that? Because he knew that her love for him was the most precious thing in all the world, both for her and for the world. And so Jesus not only affirmed her in that moment, when the math would suggest otherwise, he not only affirmed her, but he said, what she's done will never be forgotten. And here we are, 2,100 years later, still hearing the story of her love in that moment. Church, understand something. Jesus said the greatest commandment, the greatest rule is to love God. Why? Because your ability to obey all the other rules flows from that. Love always asks, what can I do? Can I tell you a secret? At SeaTac Airport, when we flew in on Thursday night about 11 o'clock, I fell in love with a guy at the airport. Let me explain. He was directing traffic in driving rain in the SeaTac arrivals area. He was soaked. He had to stand out in those lanes of traffic constantly. The place was incredibly busy. Hordes of cars coming through. Uh, Brent and Heather Smith, who picked us up from the airport, it took them an hour to get from the cell phone lot to the arrivals. That's how busy it was. And this guy was standing out in the rain directing traffic. Why? Because everybody's tendency is to pull into that arrival area and then just stop and wait for their friends. And if you let that go, you would just have a, a log jam that would never end. And this guy had to constantly go to car after car after car and knock on the window. No, move. You can't stop here. Go around again and watch for your friend. Pull in, load, get out. And he's doing this constantly. And people are giving him 
you know, dirty looks and disobeying him and ignoring him. And this guy just relentlessly, finally, I watched him doing this and I said, man, I love you. And I went over to him and I just touched him on the shoulder and said, man, you are doing a thankless job. Can I just thank you? Because we are all benefiting from it. He said, yeah, now leave me alone. No, he, uh, you know, he said, thank you. You know, he said, thank you. Church, that's what love does. I could have just stand on the porch and said, well, he's doing his job, I'll do mine. I'll obey his rules, let him do his. But no, no, no. Love goes a step beyond that. And God says that when we go a step around, that's where we find the power to obey his rules. That's where Joseph found the power to resist temptation in his life. So let me ask you, we're almost done. Who do you love? Who do you love so much that you let that love exert its power over you? Is there anyone? More pointedly, does God fall into that category? You know, just, just as your, your brother, can I ask you this morning, uh, is your life about obeying him or loving him? There's a difference. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that I no longer call you servants. I don't want you to just obey. He said, I want to call you friends, which means that our partnership, our relationship, our life together is about our love for one another. Can you feel that in your life? Have you chosen that in your life? Not merely to obey God so you can get on with your business, do what you want and not be bothered, but to love him because of who he is. In 2008, a man named Edward Bersig and his wife Mariana and their young friend Daniel, uh, young friend Daniel, went for a day hike on Mount Rainier. The story was in the Seattle Times. As they were turning home in the afternoon, a blizzard blew in, brought high winds and ultimately more than five feet of snow, and they were trapped and couldn't get out. Being experienced climbers, they dug a trench in the snow and got inside to conserve body heat. Edward used his body to block the mouth of the trench in order to keep his wife and his friend warm. It got cold. His wife and friend fell asleep because of the cold. Edward, however, stayed where he was, blocking the entrance, keeping the wind out, keeping the temperature up just a few degrees. It didn't feel good, but he wasn't a prisoner to the way he felt. Instead of seeking to feel good, he had decided to be good. And because of him, his wife and friends survived. He died. Because he loved them more than anything else, they survived. And it is that kind of love that sets us free to obey God's rules. You may be saying to yourself, why do I struggle so hard to obey God's rules? I want to. The answer is, you haven't given yourself to loving him to romancing him, to worshiping him. For the first and last time in my life, I'm going to quote Huey Lewis in the news from this pulpit. <laughs> That's the power of love. <laughs> That's the power of love. Men, fathers, there's a part of you that desperately wants to be like Edward, but you can't do it without love. Only love is strong enough. And when you know God like Edward knew his wife and his friend, you'll be like Joseph. You'll be like Jesus. You'll be you. Everywhere I turn, I see people trying to be pure without loving God. It's impossible. 
Unless and until you allow him to be closer than a brother, closer than a religious figure, closer than your best friend, you will struggle to keep his rules. But when God is your friend, your best friend, you have power. This is why Jesus said the greatest commandment, the greatest rule is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, because that's where the power is. My wife did not climb on a bicycle for two weeks because she was looking forward to that feeling you develop in your bottom on a bicycle after two weeks. She did it. The only reason she did it, you guys, she loves me. And she thrills to see me experience my quirky preferences riding through the countryside instead of going in a car. And that love is powerful beyond belief. So Paul says, look again at verse one, we're finishing. Paul says, be imitators of God, catch this church, as dearly loved children. Knowing that, Joseph said, I know my master loves me, so I want to keep his rules. The Bible says to me, to you, hey, your father loves you more than anything. That's where you'll find the power to keep his rules. Here at MRCC, we have a simple formula. We talk about discipleship. We say God wants you to grow from knowing him only as Savior to knowing him as Lord, to knowing him as Father, and then ultimately to knowing him as friend. That's his agenda for your life and mine. One final story. One of the things Ron and I feel when we go to Europe, and I mentioned it a moment ago, is the spiritual emptiness and darkness of that place. It needs the gospel. It needs missionaries. There are so many gorgeous cathedrals but very little church life. Most of the cathedrals don't even function as churches. They're just tourist traps. In Gouda, however, in Belgium, there is a less gorgeous church. By the way, we learned it's not Gouda cheese, it's Gouda cheese. So now I'm going to spend the rest of my life correcting people about that. But anyway, in Gouda, there's a less gorgeous church, but it has life. It has a story. And the story is that this church, which has been continuously holding worship services since the 12th century, that's humbling, was filled with windows that tell the story of Jesus, these incredible stained glass windows. Well, when the Nazis invaded in World War II, they were grabbing everything. They were looting everything. The congregation of the church in Gouda, they took all their windows out knowing that the Germans were coming. And then each family took as many pieces of window as they could and hid them in their homes. They buried them in their basements. They buried them in their gardens. They put them under the couch. They hid them wherever they could, knowing that in doing so, their lives were in danger. They could die. If they were caught with them, they would be killed. But they did it anyway. The whole congregation took all the windows down. There's like 32 of them, huge, and hid them all over the place. As a result, the Nazis didn't find a single one of the windows. And when the war was over, the congregation came back and put them all back in their place, and they're here to this day for you and I to see. Now, why would they do something like that? It's not necessary. Many of us would say you took an unnecessary risk. The people who risked were asked, why would you do that? Their answer was simple. The windows tell the story of our Savior Jesus, and that story is more precious than life. See, that's the difference between love and just obeying God so you don't have a hassle. And in that, you will find the power to keep his rules. My favorite story in all of scripture is Luke chapter 7. A woman comes who had lived a sinful life. 
She kneels at Jesus' feet. The guy who was hosting the dinner, Simon, says, if you knew the truth about her, you wouldn't let her do that. Jesus said, oh, Simon, he who has been forgiven little loves little. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. So where's the power to keep his rules? It's in letting him forgive you much. And he's willing to do that in this moment. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Maybe you live with a a deep struggle with sin. Maybe it has to do with greed. Maybe it has to do with your tongue. Maybe it has to do with your sexuality. And you say to yourself, I I can't find the power to break this. Jesus says the power flows from the moment you let him forgive you of your sins. The moment you go to him asking for forgiveness, confessing and admitting your sin, and allowing him to wash you clean of it, he will do that in this moment if you go to him in your heart right now. He's here. Out of that moment flows the power to be free, to obey the rules that God gives. You can do that right now. Maybe you're here and you've never said to God, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. As a consequence, you've never loved Him. In this moment, He wants to introduce you to the reality of His love for you, and it happens when you let him forgive you much. He's listening. Go ahead. Tell him. Make your confession. Let him meet you in this moment and you'll walk out of here with a power you never knew before. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. God, forgive me for being so wound up that I preached too long, but it is the truth of your word that gives us life. God, as we go from here today, let it be with the knowledge that you give us your rules because you love us and we find the power to obey them when we receive your love. We pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Wow.